Well, I would uh, ask you uh, to again open your Bibles, and uh, we're going to turn this morning uh, for my text uh, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, my text is uh, rather short this morning, not lengthy, uh, and it's probably a text that many of you know well. But I suspect that many of us know it perhaps too well as far as being familiar with the words that are in it, but far too often do not stop and consider in awe and wonder, you know, just what is being said in these few words uh, of this one verse in First Timothy chapter 1. And so I would call your attention this morning, if I could, to verse 15. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And, and actually, I, I want us to concentrate this morning not even on all of this verse, but just a portion of it. Uh, the last uh, bit uh, we'll save for another time, uh, which is also worthy of our consideration. But... Uh, if you would look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where here the Apostle Paul says, The saying, the saying, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Paul went on to say, uh, of whom I am the foremost, King James says, of whom I am chief. Paul considered himself the worst of all sinners. Uh, and I, I suspect that many of us, at times in our lives, as we reflect upon uh, our own heart, our own life, in light of who God is and what God is like, uh, perhaps we all feel to be in the same boat as Paul felt when he wrote those words. But we're going to concentrate our attention this morning on the first portion of this uh, verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, before we go on, I would ask you, if you would, uh, that you would bow in prayer with me again and pray that God will make this portion, even though it be a brief portion of His Word, uh, that God will make it a blessing to us. And and I don't mean by that that we're not going to be looking at much of God's Word this morning because we are. But as far as the text concern, is concerned, it is brief, but it says so much that is of ultimate importance in all of our lives. And so I would ask you to pray with me and pray for me, and we'll trust that God will be pleased to speak His Word to our hearts today. Bow with me, if you would. Our dear, gracious, loving, Heavenly Father. Our Father. Oh, how grateful that we can address You as our Father. Thank You. Thank You for adopting us into Your family, Lord. Not because we're worthy, but because Christ is worthy and you look upon us as in Him, your Son, the Lord Jesus. 
And now, Father, we bow before you to ask especially that it might please you to arrest our hearts. Arrest our hearts and give us grace this morning, great grace, that our hearts would be able to understand uh, these words recorded here in First Timothy. Make them real to us, Lord. Help us to to benefit from it, to profit from it, uh, and become more of what you'd have us to be as a result of that. We put it in your hands, Lord, knowing that we must depend upon you. And, oh, Holy Spirit, how we pray that you would take full control of each of our hearts and lives. Mold us, fashion us, teach us, accomplish your purpose in each of our hearts and each of our lives. In Christ's precious name, I pray. Well, as I said, there's, uh, there's an awful lot in this one verse. And, and I suspect also, as I said, many of you are very much aware of this verse uh, where the apostle uh, says the things that he says. But it's interesting how he brings this uh, verse to light here by saying, the saying... The saying. Uh, what does he mean by the saying? Well, uh, the saying, he says, is trustworthy and deserving of full, full acceptance. Uh, this phrase or this particular saying is only found five times in the Scripture. And uh, all five of those times are in, in the pastoral epistles. And by that we mean First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, all five of them are found here in, in these uh, words that the Apostle Paul has written to Timothy and to Titus as young pastors needing some guidance and instruction and direction in their lives. And it's to each of these that he uh, says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And in each case, uh, the saying, that which he is presenting to them as he writes to them, uh, it deals with God's grace in the salvation of sinners, with the exception of one of them uh, that does not necessarily deal with that. It deals with uh, uh, the uh, uh, laying on of hands and the ordaining, if you will, of men who desire uh, to enter into the gospel ministry, which is very closely related uh, to God's saving grace because it is the gospel of God's saving grace that all of those who are uh, appointed by the, the Spirit of God and directed by the church to recognize as, as preachers of, uh, of God's Word, it's, it's that which uh, we're to proclaim, is it not? Uh, but uh, here in our text this morning, it is uh, very clear that this is what the saying is all about, uh, that Paul is writing, for he goes on to say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The last instant, instance in which we find this particular saying is found in the book of Titus. You might want to just turn there and look with me where it is also very clear uh, what this saying is, is about. Titus, the third chapter and, and verse 8. If you'd care to look at this with me here, the, the apostle says, This saying is trustworthy. 
And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, what is he talking about here? Well, if we go back to verses 4 through 7, we find exactly what the saying is that is trustworthy and and worthy of acceptance, our full acceptance. Verse 4, he says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this is the saying. This is what the saying is all uh, in reference to when he mentions that it is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Uh, Now, this is not to say that all of God's Word is not trustworthy, because it is, isn't it? It doesn't matter where we turn in the Scripture, in the Word of God. We will find that what is recorded there as being recorded by inspiration, recorded by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is worthy of our confidence, our trust, our belief with all our hearts. But it's interesting that uh, the only place we really read that that's true is here in these pastoral epistles where Paul is clearly talking about the, the grace of God in the salvation of sinners. And the reason I think for this is because the stress uh, that's placed upon something that is very central to all of God's Word. Uh, this matter of salvation by the grace of God from our sin. Isn't this really what all of God's Word is about? All of God's Word beginning to end. Some places it's not nearly as clear as it is in others, but nevertheless... Wherever you study in the Word of God, if you look intently and and seek the Spirit of God for His direction and help and and leadership in teaching you what God is saying, you'll find that it is related in some way, to some degree, with God's purpose of saving sinners from eternal destruction. And, uh, And we need to be grateful for that and realize that this is something worthy of our confidence, worthy of our trust, that uh, it's, it's deserving of our full acceptance and, and belief with all of our hearts. And so, uh, to begin with, uh, we need to keep that in mind as we consider what it is that Paul is saying now in our text here before us, where he says that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, came into the world uh, to save sinners. Uh, Christ. Christ is the, uh, the, the New Testament uh, in English of the Greek Christos. Christos, which literally means anointed. That's what Christ means. It means anointed. And when we look here in the Scripture, we re- realize as we study God's Word that Christ here is actually just the New Testament uh, translation of what we find in the Old Testament to be translated into English as Messiah. Messiah. And the Messiah in the Old Testament, uh, well, the definition of that Hebrew word 
which is translated Messiah, is anointed one. Anointed one. And uh, that one that is anointed or set apart by God uh, for a specific purpose, and one that uh, uh, was the anticipated king and deliverer uh, mentioned so frequently in the Old Testament uh, as one that God was going to send into this world to be just that, a deliverer and a king reigning over all of his people. And we see that when we come to the New Testament and we read of Christ, which is the equivalent of Messiah in the Old Testament, that uh, this is actually fulfilled by the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, in the New Testament. Now, this verse has been on my heart uh, for quite some time now. As a matter of fact, uh, before, uh, probably a week before Christmas. Uh, and I began to think about this verse, you know, thinking about Christmas, my mind went to this verse, that Christ Jesus came into the world. <laughs> uh, and, and that's really what the celebration of Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's Christ Jesus coming into this world. And so this has been on my heart for, for some time now. And uh, I, I just felt that I had to come uh, to it and for us to consider it together. And so I want us to go on and do this here this morning as we consider what Paul is saying here uh, in what he calls a trustworthy and saying worthy or deserving of our full acceptance. That being that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, Christmas is a big thing. Christmas is a big thing here in this country and in many other places in the country too. But God did not send His Son, uh, Christ Jesus, into this world just so we would have another holiday to observe. Uh, much more important than that. And yet, uh, even we who are Christians, I think, sometimes uh, are guilty of uh, placing more emphasis upon Christmas as being just a holiday and a good time of being with family and all, rather than really what it was supposedly meant to be about. Uh, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus coming into this world. Uh, it's interesting that uh, here he is called Christ Jesus. Most often when we see those two words together in the New Testament, it's just it's reversed, isn't it? It's Jesus Christ. But the emphasis here, and the reason I think that we see it as Christ Jesus is because we need to understand uh, who was first here. Who was first? Christ, uh, the Messiah. Who is he? Uh, he is, we learn, uh, do we not, the God-man. The God-man. Uh, so many prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to him. Uh, let's look at just a few of them here for a moment. Perhaps that will help us understand a little bit more about this one that Paul is talking about here. Uh, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a coming child. Uh, we, we should turn back there and look at this in the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, first of all, we look at chapter 7, if we could, in Isaiah, where Isaiah foretold of a coming child. 
And it's interesting uh, what he tells us here that his name is. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 7, if you would, in verse 14. Well, the scripture here tells us, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Call his name Emmanuel. Well, we get into the New Testament in the book of Matthew where we uh, read about this as well. And we find what Emmanuel really means, don't we? You recall that, what it means? We'll look at it perhaps in a few minutes, but it means God with us. God with us. This one prophesied uh, to come into the world, into this world, uh, to be king, to reign in the hearts and lives of God's people, and uh, to be their deliverer. This, this one, this child born, whose name was Emmanuel, is no one less than God with us. God with us. Make no mistake about it. God with us. He always has been. He always will be. This one that we're talking about here, Christ Jesus. Uh, he always has been. Uh, his name, when he is born there in Bethlehem, was Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Uh, the Messiah was next identified by the prophet Isaiah in the ninth chapter of Isaiah, where here he is identified as a descendant of David, and his reign was declared to be an everlasting reign. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 here, where we read again about a child to be born. Unto us a child is born, and a son is is given. It isn't it isn't it interesting here that a child was born, but the son was given. What does that tell us? He already was the Son of God, wasn't he? Everlastingly the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Born a child, yes. But but a son, everlasting son, always has been given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government of peace and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts uh, will do this. prophecy here in Isaiah about him. Well, we turn to the book of the prophecy of Micah. Uh, if you would, turn there with me for just a moment. Micah predicted that this child that uh, Isaiah said uh, was to be born uh, of a virgin, this very child, the same one that Isaiah was talking about, Micah uh, predicted here where he would be born. Look with me where we learn here in Micah chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse 2 these words. But thou, or but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel and whose coming forth is from of old, from of, old, 
from ancient days. Uh, born in Bethlehem. Oh, we're very familiar with uh, the Christmas story uh, as it's recounted to us about the birth of Jesus. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem, a little uh, almost uh, uh, unknown town, uh, the town of Bethlehem. Uh, but look with me a little further here in verses 4 and 5 of Micah chapter 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, prophesied uh, about his birth and where it was to take place here in Micah. We see many other references in the book of Psalms uh, that we consider messianic psalms or psalms that tell us about God going to send uh, a deliverer, a king uh, to his people. Uh, we come to the New Testament and we find that the Lord Jesus, if you want to turn there and look at this with me in Mark, the gospel according to Mark, the Lord Jesus actually uh, acknowledged Himself to be the Christ or the Messiah. Mark chapter 14, uh, verses uh, uh, 61 and 62, the 14th chapter of Mark. Verse 61 and 62. But He remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked Him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed, <laughs> being asked here as he's uh, in this mock trial before his crucifixion, being asked, uh, uh, are you the Christ? The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son uh, of, of the Blessed? You see, these people, uh, uh, these Jewish people, they knew very well of the promise of one to come who was to be the Messiah or the Christ and that he was the son of the blessed. And so they ask him here, are you this one? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now this just angered uh, the leaders of the Jewish people all the more because they knew exactly what Jesus meant when he answered, I am. Do you recall uh, where we first run on to that I am? Uh, I believe it was in maybe the third chapter of the book of Exodus where uh, Moses has his encounter uh, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the burning bush uh, there in the wilderness on the backside of the desert as he was tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. And uh, God spoke to Moses clearly, told him that he was going to send him back into Egypt to, to deliver his, his people. And so Moses, one of the questions that he had, and he had several actually, but one of the questions that he had was, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? And what did God say? Tell them, I am has sent you. 
I am being the eternal, everlasting, self-existent God. That's who I am, is and was and always will be. And there were numerous times in the scripture when Jesus actually used that in reference to talking about himself. I am. I am. Making it very clear that he was acknowledging before men that he was the son of the blessed. That he was the Messiah or the Christ as uh, uh, the scripture says. And it's interesting as we look at this uh, particular aspect of uh, of the Word of God, the Messiah and the Christ and His coming into this world, that uh, there is also prophecy about one who would be a forerunner uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about that in the very last book of the Bible. Before we uh, find the New Testament beginning in the book of Malachi, if you want to turn there and look with me, chapter 3 of the prophecy of Malachi uh, in uh, verses 1 and 2. Here the scripture says that God, God is speaking through the prophet Malachi and he says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Isn't that something before me? This is God speaking through the prophet Malachi uh, talking about uh, the messenger that uh, he is going to send and he, this messenger will prepare the way before him, before God. Uh, and he says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now there's a difference between the messenger and the messenger of the covenant here. The messenger we will find that he's talking about here is John the Baptist. But the messenger of the covenant that he's talking about here is the one that John the Baptist is to go and prepare the way for. The Christ, the Messiah himself, the one anointed by God and set apart by God to come into this world to be king, to reign over the hearts and lives of his people and deliver them from that in which they are bound in bondage and enslaved to. Micah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, now then, having that in mind, let's turn to the New Testament, if we could. We'll come to Matthew chapter 3 for just a few moments. And we find the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi, where in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah, as well as Malachi, prophesied of this one that would come and prepare the way uh, for the Lord. Now, the scripture goes on to say in verse 4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And then we go on and read a little bit further. It says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
And, uh, and then we come down to verse 13 and 14. It says, And Jesus then came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice, behold, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Who are we seeing John talk about here? And who is it that John is baptizing here? But the one that he was to prepare the way for uh, as a messenger to do so, the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself uh, is the one that's being spoken of here in this passage of Scripture. Now let's go to John chapter 1, the Gospel according to John. The first chapter. I told you that First uh, Timothy, uh, that one verse was not going to be the only scripture we looked at. We're going to look at much of God's word here this morning. Important that we see these things to understand more clearly who this one is that uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about there in his letter to Timothy, where he said, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 19 through 36. Bear with me as we look at this. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. (laughs) And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, No. So they say to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent by the Pharisees. And so they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now then, listen. The next day, the next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. John was still out baptizing in the Jordan River. And he lifted his eyes and he saw Jesus coming toward him. And listen to what he said, Behold, behold. In other words, he was calling upon those who were gathered around him, and many of whom had come to be baptized by John. Uh, he, he called their attention to one that was approaching. And he said, Behold, look, see, turn your eyes upon this one. Behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness 
I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Son of God. Oh my. Again, we find in verse 36 that uh, the next day he again saw Jesus as he walked by and he called attention to who he was. He said, Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Now, a lamb was uh, a sacrificial offering to God uh, to make atonement for sin, wasn't it? John was pointing out this one who came after him, who was really before him, uh, as being the eternal Son of God, the Messiah prophesied who would come into this world to reign, yes, over his people, to deliver his people, yes, but not from what many of the Jews expected to be delivered uh, from their enemy, uh, the Romans but one who came into this world to deliver from sin, to offer himself up as a sacrifice in the place of sinners in order that their sin debt would be paid in full and forgiven and pardoned, removed from them as far as the east is from the west, the scripture says. Buried in the deepest sea, put behind God's back, so taken away, would Jesus take sin from those from whom he di- for whom he died as a lamb sacrificed as a substitute in the place of sinners uh, Christ Jesus Christ Jesus the eternal son of God there is no place else where we can confidently put our trust and our hope for the pardoning of our sin. There is no other one that we can place our confidence and our faith in that will guarantee that we have a place for all of eternity in the presence of God. And if we don't place our confidence and our trust in Him, then we are nothing but a hell-bound sinner. Destined. Destined to an eternity. Separated from God. Alienated from God. Suffering. Paying the price for our sin ourselves. Because we did not put our trust and our confidence in the Lord Jesus. Do you see? Are you beginning to see why the Apostle Paul made this statement? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and in doing so said this is a statement that is trustworthy. Trustworthy and deserving of your full acceptance. Believe it with all your heart for there's no other hope for a sinner but this one whom God sent into the world. The most familiar verse perhaps in all of the Bible is John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus went on to say, this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. This is the ones who are condemned. Those who are so in love with darkness, so in love with their sin, that they will not part from it and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus for pardon and forgiveness of it. Oh, do you see why this is such a worthy statement of our believing and and taking to heart and fully accepting with all of our heart? My John chapter 1 John chapter 1 takes us right back uh, to what the Apostle Paul is saying there uh, when he says Christ Jesus Christ Jesus the eternal Son of God uh, became a man when he came into this world uh, that's called the incarnation is it not incarnation is uh, taking upon you flesh. That's what it means. And is that not what the Lord Jesus did, the Christ? Did he not come into this world, take upon himself flesh, the form of flesh? That's what Paul was saying in Philippians chapter 2. We'll not take time to turn now, now. But uh, uh, Paul very clearly tells us there. Well, let's do that. Before we look at John 1, let's just go to Philippians chapter 2 for a few moments. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writing to these Christian folks at Philippi in the second chapter of his letter to them. He says this, uh, uh, well, let's begin with verse verse 5. Have this mind in you, he tells them, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a serpent, servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God. God came into this world took upon Himself the form of man, became a man, never ceased to be God, remained fully God, but became man, fully man. What a mystery. Perhaps the most remarkable and amazing event that has ever taken place and ever been recorded in all of human history. And there have been some amazing things recorded, beginning with the creation of this world and all that's in it. But nothing, I believe, surpasses the marvel and the wonder and the amazing aspect of God becoming man for the express purpose of being able to die in the place of sinners. In the place of sinners. God became man. 
Can you wrap your mind around that? Not easy, is it? Not easy. One of the great mysteries of the Godhead. That God could take upon himself flesh, become a man. Being fully God and fully man. He never ceased to be God, but for a time he laid aside, if you will, his glory. And it was covered or veiled by human flesh. We read of a time when three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, recorded, I believe, in Matthew chapter 17 and for one of the, in one of the Gospels, how that the glory, the glory of God that was in Christ was revealed to Peter and James and John in transfiguration. And for that reason, uh, John could say in his first epistle, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which our hands have handled of the word of life. Talking about what? The Christ, the glory of Christ that they saw. Uh, John talks about it in his gospel as well, doesn't he? Let's turn now to John chapter 1. A very familiar portion of Scripture to most of us. We refer to it often as John begins his gospel account, saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <laughs> he was God, He is God. Always has been, always will be the Word. He is the second person in the Godhead, in the triune Godhead. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The life was the light of men. We jump down to verse 14, and we read that this one who is called the Word... The one who was God, the Word who is God, always has been, always will be, created all things. This one, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. John being one of the three on the Mount of Transfiguration to whom the glory of God in Jesus Christ was revealed briefly in the transfiguration. And so John could say, we've seen His glory. We've seen His glory. We've seen the glory of God in Jesus. We know Him to be the one sent by God. We know the one God sent into the world to save sinners. The Christ. The Christ. We've seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, when he wrote his first letter in 1 John, begins in much the same way that he begins his Gospel account. If you'd care to look at that with me. He says, "...that which was from the beginning." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What did John say in the gospel? In him was life. And the life was the light of man. Here John says, concerning the word of life, we've seen. We've looked upon him. 
We've touched Him. We've heard Him. The life was made manifest. The life was revealed. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest or revealed to us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you or proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. So that our joy may be made complete. Oh, we come then to verses 5 and 6. And here we read, this is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light. What does that mean? God is absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. He's talking about the glory of God. That's what he's talking about when he talks about God being light. God is light. God is glorious. And in Him is no darkness at all. And then he goes on to say, if we say that we've got fellowship with Him, or if we want to have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Something very important here that we understand. Christ Jesus came into the world. That's what John tells us in his Gospel account. He talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That's what John is talking about here in 1 John chapter 1 when he said, that which we have seen which we have looked upon, who was revealed to us. He's light. We saw the glory of God in Him. But what does Paul tell us in our text? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. Those who had no fellowship with Him. Those who had no communion with Him. Those who did not know Him. Why? Because they walk in darkness. Because they walk in sin. He says in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What did Jesus say in the third chapter of John? After telling us that God so loved that He, uh, that he gave His only begotten Son, Whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, this is the condemnation. The reason men are condemned is because they love darkness rather than light. We cannot know God. We cannot see God. We cannot fellowship with God if there's darkness reigning in our lives. If we walk in darkness, if we live in darkness... The Apostle Paul makes reference to that in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it's verse 8, where he says, you were once darkness. Talking to those Christians in Ephesus, he reminds them, you were once darkness. You were once impure. You were once sin and sinful. But now, he says, you are light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. Oh, do you see why? It's so important that we grasp and understand that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Those who walk and live in darkness. Because there's no fellowship with God. There's no knowing God. There's no experiencing God 
and His presence. There's no seeing God if we walk in darkness. If we walk in darkness. Oh, Mr. Spurgeon once made the statement, when or where the light comes, the darkness must retire. Where the light comes, the darkness must retire. Have you ever walked into uh, uh, a dark room at night and reached over and flipped the light switch? What happens to the darkness? It disappears, doesn't it? It goes away. When our eyes are opened to see that God is light, that He's holy, and we're given eyes to see that, what happens to our sin? It's got to go. It's got to go. And the only way it can go is to trust in the one God sent to take it away. Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. The Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of prophecy about His coming. And many in the Old Testament longed to see Him, longed for the day that He would come as a deliverer, as a king. If we had time, we'd go back to that passage of Scripture that I read earlier there in the book of Exodus. There's so much there that we could look at and consider that pertains to the text that we have here this morning by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Perhaps you recall a little bit of what we read there in Exodus 33 where Moses wanted to see the glory of God, wanted to see the light of God's holiness, the purity of God. Uh, when we think about the light or the holiness of God, uh, what do we think about? I've often said as we've considered Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 3 and verse 23, that says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That what we're coming short of is God's sinless perfection. We're, we're coming short of, of God's holiness. And so when we think often of the glory of God, we think of the infinite splendor and majesty of all the attributes of God, all the perfections of God, in particular His holiness. We think of the beauty that emanates uh, from His character, being holy and pure and undefiled. We think of the manifest beauty of His holiness. Oh, but if we had the time to go back to Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see the glory of God, uh, how did God respond? Immediately he says, My goodness will pass before you. My goodness. There the, the glory of God is defined by God himself as his goodness. His goodness. And then he goes on to say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will uh, uh, pardon those that I want. I'll save those that I want to save. 
Oh, the, the sovereignty and the splendor and the majesty of God is most revealed in his goodness, his grace, and his mercy shown to undeserving sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said. You want to see the glory of God? You want to see the glory of God? Taste his grace. Taste his mercy. Look upon Christ. Oh, the prophet Isaiah writes where God says, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's the glory of God. The glory of God. Paul talks about this wonder of of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1 where he clearly states that God is sovereign in saving who he wants to save. He'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Very clearly he says that. And he, in a big portion of that first chapter of Ephesians, he's dealing with that. All that God has done, all that God has blessed us with. And what's the reason that he gives for all of it? It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. The praise of the glory of his grace. The goodness of God bestowed upon unworthy, undeserving sinners. We must believe him. We must trust him. Paul said, this saying is trustworthy. Worthy of our full acceptance. Anything less than that, we perish. Anything less than that, we die in our sins and are forever separated from him. Those of us who have trusted in him have reason to rejoice, do we not? Always. Always to rejoice. Those who have not trusted in him have reason to stop and give some serious, sober consideration to what happens to sinners who do not put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. May God speak to each heart, to each of us, May we who know him rejoice, as Peter says, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And those who don't know him, turn to him, trust him with all your heart. This saying is worthy of confidence, worthy of trust. Believe it with all your heart. Let's pray.